Hi, my name is Liz Lightfoot and I'm a professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Minnesota. I'm happy to welcome you to this podcast where I'll be talking with Sharon Dezellar about a new practice model for working with parents with disabilities called parent-centered planning. Um, before we talk with Sharon, I'll tell you a little bit about parent, the parent-centered planning model um, and then we'll go on and have a more in-depth discussion with Sharon. Uh, as many of you might know, there's more and more people with all types of disabilities who are becoming parents. Unfortunately, there are few formal services or supports to assist them with parenting as our support and service system focuses on supporting people with disabilities as individuals rather than as parents or caregivers. So our social service system just really isn't designed for providing supports for caretaking right now. Um, hopefully this is changing and this is what we're trying to do with this new model. Um, there have been some promising interventions developed to assist people with disabilities with parenting, but these tend to focus on increasing parenting skills, like individual parenting skills. And we actually have some good evidence supporting some of these in interventions, which is great. But these interventions focus mainly on strengthening individual skills focused just on the individual or the parent with a disability rather than developing supports or looking at their broader environment, which is what we often focus on from a social work perspective or a disability supports perspective. And there really has been less emphasis on developing family or community supports. And there's only a few studies showing how these types of supports can help parents with disabilities when intuitively we know that they can. Uh, the more I personally have been doing research highlighting the barriers parents with disabilities have been facing, the more I'd become interested in developing even a very simpler basic program for parents with disabilities to figure out how they could start building their own supports. And I was fortunate to receive funding to do this from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, which we know fondly as NIDLER, as part of a partnership I had with the National Research Center on Parents with Disabilities out of the Heller School at Brandeis University. So together with my research assistant at the time, Sharon, who I'll be talking with in a few minutes, we created this parent-centered planning model, which we have developed and now we have pilot tested. And this model is based on the person-centered planning approach, which is really common in working with people with disabilities particularly youth at transition age, but really used with people at all life stages. Um, and very briefly, the person-centered planning um, approach, the main goal of it is to help a person with a disability plan for supports through a process that assists people and their broader social networks to plan by focusing on a person's strengths and preferences rather than on a formal assessment or a formal plan or having an expert determine what a plan would be. So key parts of person-centered planning are that it's individualized with a person as a disability at the center of the planning and decision-making process. And supportive people are invited to participate, such as family and friends, but they are not to direct the nature of the goals or to be direct the decision-making at all. Uh, is typically done using a series of structured exercises focusing on strengths and preferences of the individual with a disability and is facilitated by a trained facilitator. And again, that facilitator's role is to facilitate decision-making um, of the person with a disability and their supportive team rather than to provide input or make assessments or make recommendations. So. Our parent-centered planning model, which we'll talk about today, draws on this person-centered planning approach, but broadens the focus from the individual to the parent with an intellectual or developmental disability and his or her children with a specific focus on the parent in his or her parenting role. So that's what parent-centered planning is. It's really taking this person-centered planning model and broadening it to be parent-centered or family-centered. And we will go into the details of this model through a discussion with Sharon DeZellar. And I'm really happy to have Sharon today with me to talk about her experiences with the parent-centered planning model because she was a social worker 
who is a social work researcher who is responsible for implementing the parent-centered planning model here in our pilot study at the University of Minnesota. Uh, she is now an assistant professor of social work at St. Catherine University, where she teaches a variety of master's level social work classes and continues her research interests related to disability services and supports. So now I will ask Sharon to, to talk with me about the parent-centered planning model. I'm happy to have Sharon here today to talk about her experiences with the parent-centered planning model. So can you walk through what the parent-centered planning model looked like as the social work researcher implementing it using an example? And of course, obviously, we will use de-identified examples here. So we're not actually giving the personal information of anyone here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the participant that I'm going to talk about today, I'll refer to as Jessica in this story. Okay. Um, and as stated, that's not her real name. And so all the names, including of her other family members, have been changed throughout as well. And, and the details, too. And the details have been edited a little bit to protect her privacy. Okay. Um, the process starts with an intake meeting. Um, at this meeting, we gather information about um, who are the key support people that are involved in the parent's life. I ask questions about the disability, how that might impact parenting, and get a sense of what types of things this person might want to work on. So what are the things in their life that are challenges for them or barriers for them? Um, while we're not really starting on a full goal setting process at that point, we're starting to talk about that so we can plan our intervention in a way that's most helpful to the family. Um, at that intake meeting, we identify who those key support people are so that we can invite them to a meeting, which is the second step. The parent gets to decide if, you know, who gets to be there and also how we're going to invite those folks. So I often helped with that process. Okay. In other cases, such as uh, Jessica's, she said that she was comfortable reaching out to her friend on her own to invite that person to the meeting. And can you tell can you tell us um, a little bit more about Jessica? Sure. What, yeah. Yeah. What was her What was her um, situation? What was her disability? What were her um, yeah, yeah. So um, when I show up to the intake meeting, who is present there is Jessica, as well as her mom, whose name is Vicki. And uh, Jessica and her daughter, B, who's 13 years old, live with Vicki. And um, this was not always the case. Um, they had, you know, lived on their own, had their own apartment. However, um, Jessica had a very um, severe car accident that, you know, resulted in multiple injuries. Um, B, her daughter, was, a, you know, approximately three at the time that that happened. Okay. Um, so this is about 10 years ago. And she had a very um, severe accident um, that resulted in a traumatic brain injury, as well as some visual impairments, several broken bones. She's had multiple surgeries, reconstructive surgeries to heal from this accident. And But the biggest negative impact for Jessica and her independence is the traumatic brain injury. It's really resulted in a loss of her being able to work. She'd previously been an independent, gainfully employed um, registered nurse. And while clearly still very intelligent, she really struggles to be organized and she really struggles with maintaining her emotions. A part of her brain that was damaged in the accident um, had a lot, has a lot to do with emotional regulation. And so her skills for that all appear very childlike. And she's able to articulate this. She's aware of it. And it was also very aware to me. <laughs> As okay. I met with her, I saw examples of right. this happening. And so because of that, they moved in with Vicki, okay. which is um, Jessica's childhood home. Right. Um, Vicki really helps Jessica take care of B and acts as almost a primary parent in a way when Jessica's not able to to function well. So did does Jessica have any other support people that she identified at this uh, initial intake meeting? Yes, she she did mention um, that she had a group of friends 
most of whom were not really supportive for parenting. They were just more like a group of girlfriends that she had occasionally, you know, would get together with. Um, however, she did identify one best friend. Um, his name is Pedro, and they've been best friends since high school, really. And that he is like a father figure to be. And um, since B's dad isn't very involved in her life, so he is involved and does help her out a lot. And so she also identified Pedro as someone that um, was a good support for her for parenting that she'd really like to have be a part of this intervention process. Okay. Then Jessica invites, who did she invite to the yep. meeting? She invited Pedro and also Vicky to be a part of the meeting. Okay. And I met Vicky at the intake meeting, and that was really helpful. We also do invite participants to have someone present with them at the intake meeting. Okay. It's their choice if they feel like they would like someone to be there to help support them. And, and it was really helpful in this case. Vicky was able to fill in some of the gaps in the story when it was confusing for Jessica to share the story. As I had mentioned, she struggles with organization, um, and it includes organization of her thoughts. Okay. She will tend to jump around from topic to topic. And so Vicki will help with that, mm -hmm. you know, and so she was at the intake meeting as well. Okay. So then after you've invited people mm -hmm. to the meeting, then what happens? What's the next step? Yeah, then um, we schedule a person-centered planning meeting, and this is the main intervention um, meeting that we have for the parent-centered planning intervention. Okay. And at this meeting, we do a number of um, things. We go through a goal planning process that is very strengths-based, and we start with asking the parent what their dreams are for the future. And um, it's really important, as in the title of the intervention, mm -hmm. that the parent is at the center, right. their wishes, their goals are what is centered. Support people are there to, you know, at times give suggestions, but more to discuss how they can be a part of supporting the parents' goals. So, and yeah. So it's really the person or person-centered planning philosophy just addressing parenting, Exactly, right? exactly. Okay. This um, intervention is modeled after person-centered practices, um, which again puts the person at the center of the planning, the person with disabilities, and strikes-based practices. Right. And we have altered this to focus specifically on parenting. Okay. on the parenting yeah. role. And so we started, for <laughs> Jessica's case, we started with her, her dreams for the future in which she she struggled a little bit with this um, because with her challenges with organization, it, it seemed a little abstract for her. I mean, she said very general, general things about, um, you know, would love to be living independent again with her daughter, but she also recognized or stated recognition that she didn't also really think that that was maybe a good idea. Uh -huh. But she mentioned it as right. something that she thought about as in like a very dream like mm -hmm. <laughs> sense. But when we broke it down from um, dreams to, hey, what are some really positive and possible goals for one year that she was able to identify mm -hmm. some specific goals. Um, before we talked about those goals, however, we did talk about Jessica's strengths okay. and she was able to identify that, you know, she was a very caring mother, and when she was functioning well, she was a very good, attentive mother. And it's hard for people to talk about strengths without talking about their challenges, and so she did identify that it's day-to-day -day for her how she's functioning, and there isn't really a way to predict it. If she wakes up with, like, a really bad migraine or something, that might last for two days, and she's basically in bed for two days mm -hmm. and not able to function as a parent. And in those cases, it's very necessary for Vicky to be there and to step in and be the parent. Jessica was fortunate in having the support of Vicky, her mother, because Vicky's retired. Mm -hmm. So she had the time to give. That's and good. she and so Jessica fully recognized that this was a strength for her family, but also a privilege that not a lot of families have. Right. She was in full recognition that they were okay because of Vicky. <laughs> um, right. So she well, that's a strength of hers too. It is. It is. She did have that support of her mom. Right. So that was definitely a strength. And, and then, as I stated, when she was feeling well, she was a really good, fun mom, liked mm -hmm. to take her daughter to do things, um, 
very caring. This family has a ton of pets. And so, (laughs) you know, like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so they were, um, and of which she is the primary caregiver for the pets as well. And that that's a very good thing for her to be doing. So can I ask you, um, this takes place in their home, right? Yes, yes. So we're meeting, um, we're meeting with the participants really at the place that they feel comfortable. And of all of our participants, everyone wanted to meet in their own home, except for one preferred to meet at a coffee shop. But um, (laughs) it's their choice. We prefer to do it in home because we want to help families Mm -hmm. in their natural environments. But if they're not comfortable with that, we certainly... They don't need to do that. (laughs) Was the child there? Um, She was there for part of the intervention meeting. Um, One thing that had happened, as I had mentioned, how um, Pedro was invited to this meeting. And Pedro was present for the intervention meeting for about the first half of it. And then he brought B to urgent care due to a suspected sinus infection. Ah. And this was planned and discussed before I arrived. So um, he was planning to be there for the meeting. And then Jessica said, you know, B is really sick. Like, instead of being at the meeting, can you actually take her to the clinic? Because that's what I need. And an example and of support. It yeah. is. And and he was very willing to do that. And it seemed that he'd done that before. Like, he was comfortable with what insurance the child had. And so he was, he was okay filling in for that role. So, but he was there for the beginning of the meeting. Okay. Um, he didn't add a lot of input. But he was present and just he just is it was a very calm, kind person Uh that it appeared that his presence was just was helpful for Jessica. So in in other um, examples of when you did the parent center planning meeting, were there larger groups present in some cases? In a couple of cases, there were um, groups of up to six people that present, which could include friends family members, you know, immediate family members like parents, aunts, partners. So in some cases, the groups were larger. Mm-hmm. In other cases, some families really struggled with finding anyone to invite. Right. And maybe only one person would be there. Mm-hmm. We actually had one um, example where a person had um, invited a couple of friends and then no one showed up. Mm-hmm or they had indicated shortly beforehand that they couldn't come. So I think that really speaks to the limited (laughs) supports that some parents with disabilities have for parenting in that they really struggle to even find people to invite. And and this is very different from our typical person-centered planning, which we might do with a young person with a disability where they might be able to enlist a whole host of Mm -hmm. people, friends, family, caring adults, teachers, yeah. people from church, people from right. other other organizations who can come in. And sometimes we see examples where there's a dozen people at a person's right. planning meeting. But for, for these parents in our project, we had a hard time. Some of them had very limited supports. They did. And again, some of them really struggled. And, and they were really isolated. Yeah. Some parents, like a, a different example, um, there is a parent who lives in a disability high-rise with her child, right. and her child is the only child in the entire building. Uh-huh. And so to think of how isolating that is for, for the child, mm-hmm. to be in a large apartment building and there's not a single other kid there, right. um, as far as playmates and mm-hmm. how close are they to parks and schools and things where kids are, um, that also made it challenging for that parent to have friends that were parents. Right. She had lots of friends. Mm-hmm. They were a lot of friends in her building that were great supports for Uh her, but those people were not parents. And so they didn't really know the ins and outs of parenting as a parent myself. Like the camaraderie. Right. The the being able to vent about challenges with toilet training children or children who don't stay in their own bed at night and to not have any friends to problem solve that with was really a challenge for her as well as then for social opportunities for both her and her child. So that, I mean, that was a a, a different case, but I I think it highlights how isolated this population might be and how it may differ from a traditional person-centered planning model and just how, because of the so few supports that some of these families had. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So so we've got this smaller group at this parent-centered planning meeting. Right. And in Jessica's case, you've 
uh, identified the strengths and yes. the dreams. What were some of the positive and possible goals that she had? Yeah. Well, at the intervention meeting, we really identified three main goals of things that she wanted to work on. And again, these are all identified by Jessica with some support and input from Vicki, but they are Jessica's goals. The first being more of just an immediate shorter term goal, but it was an important one. Um, Vicki was coming up in about a month from the meeting, was going to be out of the country for a couple of weeks and was very concerned about how Jessica and B were going to function without her there because of the primary role that she takes on. And, you know, without getting into too much detail, this is an annual trip for Vicky. And in previous years, sometimes it's been really awful okay. um, in terms of things that have happened while they're gone. Um, you know, not in the terms of like extreme abuse or neglect, but more in the sense of the impact on Jessica and her mental health and her physical health with being so overwhelmed and not having okay. Vicky's support. Like, it, yeah, the stress. Just the, the impact of the stress, stress on her of not having that person to right. rely on to help with her daughter. So that was a, a goal was preparing and making sure that um, they had some plans and supports mm-hmm. in place so that Vicky could feel a little more comfortable uh, going away and less concerned about what was happening at home while she wasn't there and making sure that B is safe during that time and well cared for. And also from Jessica's perspective, it was she brought it up, but her concern was a little bit more of my mom needs to let me do this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so she wanted the independence and she didn't <clears throat> want her mom to overplan it. So the goal was directed by her. She wanted to feel like she was trusted to do it. And, you know, she she wanted her mom to relax and let her do it, <laughs> okay. essentially. That's a good goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah yes. Goal. So, um, so that, that was a very short term. Yes. Yes. That was goal. that was a shorter term goal. Yeah. The other two goals were a little bit more long term. One related to B's mental health. As B is an adolescent, um, Jessica's really noticing some signs of depression and anxiety. She thinks a lot of it has to do with her family situation, the fact that she doesn't get to have much of a relationship with her father. Mm-hmm. Also, just family history of depression and anxiety. And so she really wants to get that addressed and she really wants to make sure that B is okay and get B connected with some mental health services. But that's a really insightful goal for her. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. She's a caring mom. Yeah, absolutely. The third goal area that Jessica brings up is that she really wants to make sure or she wants to work on her relationship with her mom, Mm -hmm. with Vicki. There is a lot of tension between the two of them. They both stated it. And it was really apparent being in the home. It appears to me that there's some unaddressed, you know, like resentment Mm -hmm. and tension about this change in roles. And Jessica at times, um, as I mentioned previously with her struggle with lack of emotional regulation and emotional control, and she can at times act very immaturely, will um, sometimes really yell at Vicky or scream mm-hmm. at Vicky about things. Um, she'll just be very angry. Um, she'll seem very demanding and like, well, I need you to do these things for us. Vicky basically just absorbs all of that. Um, I did not observe Vicky to be combative or to argue back, mm-hmm. but you could just tell that she was, in a sense, taking a lot of almost verbal abuse it would seem, you know, that way. However, Vicky was recognizing that this was words that were coming out of her daughter's mouth that her daughter couldn't control. So you could tell she was trying really hard not to take it personally, but mm-hmm. that is a very hard thing to live with. Sure. And so they wanted to work on their relationship. And they both wanted to work on they it. They both wanted to work on it. Jessica brought it up and Vicky said, you know, confirmed that this was an issue and she expressed some sadness about the change in the role that she mm-hmm. was a caregiver. For Jessica, again, almost like parenting another teenager Mm -hmm. in a way with some of the emotional reactions, whereas, you know, they used to be able to do fun mother-daughter things together, and that's gone. Mm, Like, they used to be able to take trips together, and now that is gone. And so she really had a lot of sadness, and um, so they wanted to work on that relationship. So that was the third main goal that was identified. So then after you make these goals, then what do you do? How do you... 
how do you wrap up the meeting? Yeah. Well, we start with the positive and possible goals for one year. And then we work backwards in a way to say, well, okay, so where are things at now? And identify the gaps in between now and what you want it to look like in a year. And then really break down what are the supports, both informal supports as well as connections to services mm-hmm. that you might need in order to achieve those goals. So we ide- we identify those resources that are needed that we need to build on. And we break down into more attainable action steps. Like, well, what could we do in three months time that would be steps towards these goals, but are also very doable for three months. And then from the three month point, we identify one or two bold steps. Okay. These would be things that we choose something that we are pretty confident that are going to happen <laughs> so okay. that the person gets to like build a, doable, a very doable, doable but bold a bold step. step. And so mm-hmm. really getting someone to make that commitment. And in this case, there were more than one bold step because they related to two different goal areas. Okay. One of the bold steps that the group came to was um, we scheduled a time to meet to do a planning session about the Vicky's trip. Okay. So that was one of the <laughs> things was, stuff. let's actually schedule a time to have a focused conversation about Vicky's trip okay. versus just sort of like talking about it casually. Right. So, so it was you a, made an actual, right. actual yes. appointment. Yes, we made an appointment to plan <laughs> Vicky's trip. And, and, so, and you were involved and in that. that and I part? helped facilitate and support that appointment. So that was one of the bold steps. The other one was that Jessica was going to call, make a phone call to um, the county that they lived in, the Children's Mental Health Services, and ask about um, how she could be connected. So basically, you know, contacting that that initial front door services, which are what some counties call it, their front door services. So just to make that call and to ask, like she didn't need to get appointments scheduled or anything. It was just this one doable thing. You can make this initial call to ask about getting connected with services and, and just learn about what are her next steps. So those were the bold steps that she identified at that time. So then afterwards, um, so sometimes in, in, other types of person-centered planning, it sort of ends there. But for the parent-centered planning, we have some follow-ups. So can you tell us what the follow-ups were like or are like? Yeah. So there was a little bit of variation based on the family's needs and goals. But typically, there was an additional one or two meetings that happened that were continuations, in a way, of that parent-centered planning meeting. Um, In this case, one of those was that planned meeting about, let's plan for Vicky's vacation. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was one of those. It was was very, um, it had a specific purpose. In some other cases, those meetings might have been uh, an opportunity for me to bring back some resources. So for example, if we had discussed what independent living services are or what um, adult rehabilitative mental health services are. If we had discussed those things in the intervention meeting and I had presented those as options, some families didn't know what those things were and were not connected to those services. And so then we would schedule that follow-up meeting and then I would bring them information about that. I would bring them like the phone numbers to contact and, you know, sort of how to start to get connected. Okay. So they, so they would have ideas about what kinds of support they might need, but they they didn't know what what services existed. Is that right, right, right. So those things came out of that parent-centered planning right. process, right, when we kind of identified what the goals are mm-hmm. and then break that down into, well, what supports and services do you need to help you to meet your goals? Mm-hmm. Um, some people weren't aware of what those were. Right. And also, because I don't know ahead of time what the parents' goals are going to be, <laughs> I couldn't come with that information sure, at, yes. to do at that time. Right. So we would schedule a future meeting that was usually done within one or two weeks because that was often tied to their bold steps. Mm-hmm. So I tried to go back out pretty quickly so that people could then make that bold make that bold step, step because now they'd have right. the information. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they had already made the step. <clears throat> and so then it was the second step, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I may meet with people one or two times following that um, initial parent-centered intervention meeting. 
Then with this intervention, we did have a planned three-month meeting again. Mm -hmm. And now this three-month later meeting brings the team back together. Okay. And so this, those one or two meetings that happened after might have been with just me and the parent, depending on the, the, the situation need, right. and the need. right? But this three-month meeting then involved bringing those other the, the support, support people, people all the together. support people back together and reviewing where are we at now, and we would update the goals mm -hmm. and set new bold, new bold steps, steps, right? And new action steps. Because within three months' time, we would have hoped that some of those, you know, three-month steps that we mm -hmm. had identified would have been accomplished. So in this case, at the three-month meeting, both Vicky and um, Pedro were there again. Okay, so her, her support continued, continued. right? And so that was um, how, how it worked for this family. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and how were they doing it? The right. Well, at the, at the three-month point, it was, you know, reported that um, the trip went fine. They didn't really, they kind of wanted to move on. They didn't want to discuss <laughs> it too much, <laughs> which gave me the impression that perhaps there were a couple of challenges, <laughs> but nothing so severe that it needed. They needed to rehash it. To address yeah. it. And and we were able to, um, I'll back up just for a moment, when we did have that meeting where we planned Vicki's trip, we were able to pull in additional support for that time. Um, and in fact, we asked, had come up with the plan, and then Jessica had asked Pedro to check in with her regularly on that trip. That was not normally something that he would have done. Mm -hmm. um, and so they had planned, she had asked him to please call her and check in on them every day in case that way if she was having a really, really bad day, he could come yeah. and um, be but there for B. Sounds like a reasonable plan. Right, right. So that was what had happened. So at this three-month meeting, we, we followed up on that a little bit, but not too extensively. Um, we did have some follow-up about the mental health mm -hmm. goal for B. Um, there was really a uh, some challenges with that. While Jessica would state, and I would certainly agree, that she followed through, um, she made calls to the um, get connected with ch Children's Mental Health Case Management at the county, and she did have um, an assigned worker mm -hmm. who gave her a bunch of resources and referrals for getting some assessments done for B. And I think also there was some insurance things that needed to be straightened out mm -hmm. based on some complications with the health insurance. And so sure. the worker was, you know, sort of giving her some things to to follow up with on that so that they could get be involved in mental health services. Mm -hmm. From Jessica's perspective, the information was provided to her in a way that she was not able to follow through with. Um, she would be given lists of potential clinics she could reach out to that were printed off of the internet. Font size was inconsistent, often very small. Pages weren't numbered. And so sometimes the phone number would be on the page after the page that listed who she was supposed to call. And that was really a challenge for Jessica because organization and paperwork is really something that she struggles with. And so the way that this stuff was provided to her was not done in a way that she could follow through with. And she indicates that she stated this. She said that she needed more help than that. Uh -huh. She was very excited about the idea of case management, children's mental health case management, because she felt that's what she needed. She needed somebody to help her organize and manage it. And what she felt like she received were just like directives of what to do okay. um, versus any sort of support or skills. And she didn't feel like those were accommodated based on her disability, based so, on her cognitive needs. Um, so so the, mm -hmm. the material or the, the resources she was giving, given weren't in an accessible format to her. She wasn't asked mm -hmm. what her accommodation needs were. She was not, it was also not visually accessible. As and a result she, of this injury, she struggles with some visual impairments okay. and she literally couldn't see some of the fine print. Mm, she could right. not read it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, well, yeah, and there, mm -hmm. I mean, there have been, you know, guidances from the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services requiring 
child protection offices to make sure <laughs> that their services are accessible under right. the Americans with Disabilities Act. But I think this information somehow right. isn't reaching everyone at the street level, the implementers right, of these right. policies. And, and this is a really great example of this. So someone who, who mm -hmm. even asked for a comp, she might not have used the right she, terms. She like, may not have. Like, yeah. I need accommodations, but this is something that it's the Child right. Protection Agency's responsibility. Right. So she's indicating that she... Um, or I guess this is children's Yeah, mental this is health. children's, mental, children's health mental, health mental health case management, but it's county, yes. still county, county services, services that she sought herself. Right. She's voluntarily seeking support right. and help. And so what she indicates to me is that she tells them, I can't <clears throat> do this. Mm -hmm. I can't mm -hmm. make these calls. I can't keep this straight. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And her perspective is that the response she receives on this is very judgmental and uh, including with a negative tone, indicating that she's not being compliant. Mm. She asked for these services and yet she's not following through. They also, you know, don't know that these words were used, but she's indicating that she felt like they were questioning her ability to parent, be mm. the parent because she couldn't follow through on this. And Well, that could she, be really scary for for a parent, where right. you think the county services are questioning your ability to parent. Exactly. And Jessica, being a previously very competent professional who knows a lot about healthcare systems, knows how to advocate for herself. And she asked to speak to a manager. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and she did. And she was explaining what had happened and how she wasn't, that the services weren't helpful, that she reached out because she needed help. And she didn't feel like she was getting help. She felt like she was getting um, more challenges mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than help. And so according to Jessica, this manager indicated that Jessica should be using her independent living services worker, ILS worker, to help her with this organization. So um, an independent living skills worker is someone who does help an individual with disabilities on a number of tasks. Um, it can include organization of paperwork and scheduling mm -hmm. of appointments mm -hmm. and keeping track of those things. However, the way that those services are, well, the way that they're billed right. and the way that, the way that they're That's funded right. and um, the, the policies related to that is that it all has to do with the individual who right. has the disability. So they were for her own appointments. Not for not for her parenting her child. Right, not for her daughter's, daughter's. appointment. Right. It's it's very clear that the services are for the individual with a disability. And so and Jessica knew this. She <laughs> knew that this worker was not supposed to help her with that. She had a really good relationship with her ILS worker. They had been working together for about five years and they had a good supportive relationship. And this worker would, you know, not to get anyone in trouble here, but at times go outside of that just to say, well, here, why don't you make this call first? Right. <laughs> if it had something to do with the daughter, right. you know, just right. to, um, she wouldn't make those calls for her She because she needed to draw that boundary. Right. Whereas if it's about Jessica, she, she could take that advocacy role. Okay. But she did give some guidance as somebody who knows the system. At the same time, that's not in her role. And clearly this manager of the Children's Mental Health Services did not know that. Mm -hmm. Was not aware that disability services do not look at parenting. They don't recognize parenting as one of those like major major life, life functions right. that need support. Right. Um, they which are, is a big which is a big issue. <laughs> you know, one of the largest issues in supporting parents with disabilities is that we don't have funding streams to support parents. Yeah, disabilities. we don't. The services are very siloed. There's the services for children and the services for parenting. And then in, a, you know, completely separate <laughs> policies, rules and funding right. are services for disabilities. Right. And the two just don't. Not meet. even. Right. <laughs> and, and nor are they aware of each other. Because, uh -huh. again, here's we're talking about a county social services manager thought that the disability services should be helping her with this. Right. When Jessica reached out to the county for help with that. Right. Because she knew her disability services could not do that. And so that's exactly the service she was seeking. And and she was she was terminated from the services. Yeah, so because she was deemed noncompliant. Mm -hmm. And so she just indicated just how she was judged and treated was really a challenge. So this was one of her major goals, and it was a big roadblock right. to getting those services. This is at the three-month follow-up point. So at, by the six-month follow-up, were, the, were there any, m any more steps towards her goals? 
Yeah, um, she she was able to get be connected with some mental health services. And what had happened is since the new school year started, so all of the like roughly August, everything fell apart with the county mm-hmm, mm-hmm. services. And so because B um, was in a traditional middle school, many middle schools have school-based mental health services mm-hmm. and clinics. And so we all kind of discussed that, well, now that we're almost to September anyways, but when the school year starts, get her connected that way. The insurance issue was still unresolved, so she still mm-hmm. needed support with that because, again, she didn't, you know, get that resolved. She right. needed to enroll, um, be in some county-based insurance because Jessica had insurance connected through her Social Security disability. Uh-huh. And so she needed to get B. B was actually uninsured. Okay. And I didn't, we didn't know. Right. So until it came, <laughs> wow. I came up through this. So that still needed to be resolved. And so it became, well, let's just use the school-based services. And so when at the six-month follow-up, it had been B had been receiving those services for a couple of months. And Jessica reported that the school social worker, which wasn't the person providing the services for B, but the school social worker was sort of overseeing it and organizing it and and following up with Jessica and serving that role that Jessica needed. Mm -hmm. And she felt like that relationship was a positive relationship with that school social worker. She didn't feel that the school social worker judged her negatively Great. For her needs for supports, <laughs> which she did feel with the county. Yeah. So wasn't to a point to report a significant symptom reduction for mm-hmm. B at this point. She was really struggling with depression and staying focused in school and But she was at least But she was getting, getting services. services. Somebody mm-hmm. was she was meeting with a therapist with a therapist regularly. Well, the social worker was involved at the school and paying attention. So Jessica felt good, good. about that. Good. And what about the relationship with her mother? Yeah, so that was another thing that required a, a, a meeting, a separate mm-hmm. meeting. Okay. And so I, um, we scheduled a meeting to talk with just Jessica and Vicki mm-hmm. about their relationship. And so I went and did a visit again with them, and we talked about that. And in a way, it was a like a one-time sort of lighter counseling session, okay. in a <laughs> sense, which I have experienced. Um, Having been an outpatient mental health Uh therapist, I felt comfortable doing that with them, but also recognizing that it wasn't my role to do that in an ongoing way. But it was sort of like a one-time session where we got to talk about things and if it would have seemed that ongoing family counseling would have been a good idea, we could have made those referrals. Right. Right. Like that would have been uh, another service we would have tried to connect with. So as I had mentioned previously with the story, um, there was really a lot of resentment, a lot of sadness, and you could just feel the tension in the room or in the home just any (laughs) time being there. You could tell that there was a lot of caring. And they just really had not spoken directly to each other about those feelings and acknowledged those feelings. Uh, they did acknowledge some loss and some changes. I think it was really helpful for Vicki to hear from Jessica just how much she does appreciate her. And also just that awareness that her emotions are completely dysregulated and that she acknowledges that she does, for example, yell at her mother or be very harsh with her and very demanding with her. And that she feels terribly that she does that. Mm -hmm. And she recognizes that she can't control it. It was really helpful for Vicki to hear that, to hear that Jessica knows that she's doing this and that she wishes she wasn't doing it. Mm -hmm. And so it really provided Vicki an opportunity, and I think she did in the first place, but it was even more so to recognize that as a disability like symptom rather than something that was part of Jessica's personality. Like this was a disability symptom. So this was something that happened around the time of the three-month follow-up that we had that conversation because it wasn't one of the two goals that Mm -hmm. were identified to work on immediately. Mm -hmm. So at the six-month appointment, they talked about, you know, the the level of support is really pretty much the same, but they did think that perhaps the arguments had been less intense because Vicky's walking away. (laughs) And so Vicky is, when Jessica's lashing out, Vicky's just leaving the room and she's recognizing it as this isn't my daughter trying to argue with me. This is the emotional dysregulation that is a symptom of my daughter's traumatic brain injury. And so she just walked away. And then 
even at that six-month follow-up appointment, it was almost even another, a little bit of a mini counseling uh-huh. session again, where um, Jessica acknowledges that Vicki is doing that. She thanks her for doing that. And she says that that's what it's going to take because she doesn't think she has the skills to not do it. She's like, it's going to take you just walking away. So even if I'm yelling at you for walking away <laughs> at the time, <laughs> which is was happening, you know, this is what um, Jessica's saying, you know, even if I'm yelling at you as you're leaving the room, like, why are you leaving? We need to talk about this. You're doing the right thing by leaving. And so that was really affirming, I think, for Vicky. Yeah, that very and insightful, too. Yeah. Her, it, oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, I was just so impressed with Jessica's right. insight and her skills. It was just really challenging and, and sad to uh-huh. just see the impact of that, just such a significant traumatic injury and how that can really change someone and change someone's functioning when there's still a lot of who they always were there and then there's just this complete loss of skills in some areas but it seems like they're able to they're they're coming up with a new normal for yeah for themselves and how they're gonna work together to raise that girl right to raise that girl and i and i think really um the, the situation seems manageable and doable. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it's going to look for Jessica once B is it's no longer right. a child or no right. longer <laughs> needs to live in the home. Sure. Because right now they're sort of rallying around B right. <laughs> and rallying together for B. Which is good. Right. Yeah. Which, is, which is great. great. Um, right. That's down the road. Right. But I could see that being a transition that could be With very challenging for transition. this family. And if there were this type of service in the community, that would be another possible planning planning session, planning session or planning or time for this family time. to figure out. A you new know, transition. It's a new transition. <laughs> So, like, sort of taking a step back. Yeah. Um, in this project, we had 13 different families participate yeah. mm-hmm. in this. And, you know, we can't talk about all of them. But, Correct. But what sort of strikes you as the person who did all these interventions? What were the greatest needs for the parents with disabilities who participated in this project? Yeah. Well, one we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. which was the lack of support overall. Right. And just how limited the support networks were for many of the families, just limited in number, Mm -hmm. um, and how isolated some people were. And related to that is a second area that I that really struck me was those kind of fuzzy lines between formal and informal supports. Mm. So a lot of people identified like their paid staff as some of their primary support people for parenting. And as I mentioned, paid staff for disabilities really aren't supposed to be doing that. I mean, it's yeah. great that people are seeing the family unit and some people had been like a direct support professional for someone for like three or four years. So mm-hmm. they do become friends in a way. But it's still, um, there's still some recognition that the person is still paid to be there. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, paid friends. They're paid friends. So what if they leave that job? Are they still their friends? Are they they still that support person for parenting? And in some of our families, some of those relationships fell apart during the course of the intervention. Mm -hmm. So people who had identified paid staff as supports, and then those person left those jobs, and there's you know, then they lost that support for parenting. Another one that was really challenging to hear is one person, you know, indicated one of her paid support people as like her best friend, but then also felt like that she wasn't really doing her job. Like she was coming over and just sort of hanging out and she actually needed things that needed to get done. Mm. And this person wasn't doing them because they were friends. So she was hanging out and watching soap operas with her. (laughs) And it felt, she felt stressed to push the person to help her with the duties because she didn't want to lose the friendship. Yeah, It was just really (laughs) messy and fuzzy. And then how that played into supporting parenting is was really a challenge. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons people push for the natural supports because they are nat- <laughs> they're yeah. not paid supports, but right. it can is easier said than done and as we saw in these families mm-hmm. most of them did have very few 
non-paid supports. Right. Um, one of the things that was an interesting outcome overall, I know this is um, jumping ahead a little bit, but in a couple of families, we were able to support those informal support network people to become paid. Mm-hmm. So there was more than one example where an immediate family member was providing a lot of support and the person, and we were able to get that person enrolled as like a personal care attendant oh, for that good. person uh-huh. so that then that improved the those relationships because then they were compensated right. for all the work that they were doing. Right. So, Which is different. It's, than, it's still a fuzzy boundary, yeah, but it was different. A it was, different type of fuzzy boundary. Yes, <laughs> right. It was an intentional, intentional <laughs> fuzzy boundary. Okay. So yeah. a, another area that is a really great need that we found, uh, we were really surprised at the high percentage of co-occurring mental illness diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it was over three-fourths of our participants had also had a diagnosis of and, a mental illness. And the people were participants in the study, they qualified because they were either had a intellectual or developmental disability or a or physical, physical disability. disability. Right. So in, the mental illness wasn't the qualifying reason. Right. While we certainly know some mental illness can be disabling. Right. And <laughs> some of um, some of our participants did have diagnoses severe enough to be considered to a mental it. health disability. However, that wasn't what qualified them to for the okay. study. So but, I think it just really speaks to this just significant mental illness within this population. And were most of the people receiving supports? It was mixed. Um, Some people were connected to services um, such as psychiatry or were seeing a regular outpatient therapist weekly or an in-home therapist weekly. And some participants were not receiving any supports or services at all. Um, Of a lot of those folks, they, they did mention having specific diagnoses. Like they previously had been connected to services. They received the official diagnosis. And often when they took on the role of parenting, they lost those services. Ah, Why do you think they lost them? Like they were too busy? Right. Well, some (laughs) of it was focusing on the parenting role and putting more attention on their children than on themselves. And so they just sort of, right, right. So they just sort of stopped going. But also some of it is that maybe those supports aren't accommodating. If they Mm -hmm. have very few supports overall, and now they have a toddler, they'd have to bring their toddler with them to their therapy (laughs) session, and that does not work. Right. (laughs) Or have somebody to care for the toddler, which if they don't have a support network. If they don't have a support network, they don't have anybody to care for Mm -hmm. the toddler. Right. So that was just an interesting example. And and some people were connected to some services, but maybe not all of the services they could receive. For example, there was one participant that used to receive ARMS services, Mm -hmm. Adult Rehabilitative Mental Health Services. Mm He did continue to receive psychiatry, but had fallen off with arms, and he wanted to reconnect with arms, and then he did as part of the intervention. So that was one of our, you know, real successful outcomes was getting people reconnected to those services, of which a lot of which were mental health services Uh that they maybe had lost or had never participated in. So what about the other disability services? Did you find that people were receiving those types of services? Yeah, again, some people were connected to independent living services. The area outside of mental health services that we saw the biggest increase in service connection to was vocational rehabilitation services. So a lot of folks had identified um, when we talked about their dreams and their positive and possible goals for one year, a lot of people identified some sort of employment activity. And it might have been even something along the lines of, I want to start volunteering Mm -hmm. or I want to find a training program. And so... Um, they were very realistic goals, but that was, again, outside of mental health services, that was the area, the biggest area where people had not been receiving those services, and then they got connected with them, and then at the six-month point, were still working with them and had made progress, you know, perhaps conducted some assessments. One participant had completed a job shadowing that was sponsored by Vocational Rehab. And then right after the six-month appointment, which she was about to start a, a part-time supported employment mm-hmm. position. Great. And that came out of the intervention mm-hmm. and the goals. So like, how do you think participating, I mean, just from your impressions, how do you think participating in this process 
was helpful <laughs> to the parents? I mean, I know that's sort of a broad question, and sure. you just gave one example, but... Right, yeah. So definitely um, taking action towards achieving goals. Pretty much every family, with the exception of one, took action towards their goals. Okay. Well, that's um, good. Right, <laughs> and a variety of the goals. So that's... <clears throat> Pretty good. That's right, pretty yeah, good. Yeah. And those goals may have been including connections to services like mm-hmm. I've just been talking about. But some of those goals also included um, reducing their isolation. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make friends. They wanted to have their children involved. In, you know, They wanted to not have their isolation negatively impact their children so much. Mm-hmm. So, for example, well, the example I gave of the child and the mom that live in the disability high rise where right. there was no kids, she was able to, she actually enrolled him in two regularly scheduled community activities because there was no children for him to play with. So he um, became enrolled in Boy Scouts and he was participating in Boy Scouts every week. And then she also um, had him in a park and rec soccer program. So, right. And so up until that point, he hadn't been doing any community activities. Mm -hmm. And then she also saw this very insightfully as a way for her to make friends and her parents because she had to bring, you know, like who are the other moms of the the Boy Scouts, (laughs) right? right? Like when, you know, so this was a way for her to meet some, some parenting friends. So that (laughs) some parent example. Yeah. 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 So those are some of the examples of Mm -hmm. the action towards goals. Um, As already mentioned, increasing connection to services, both Mm -hmm. mental health as well as disability services. And then the other real area that we saw the planning process was really helpful to the parent and their family was improving and clarifying those supportive relationships. Mm-hmm. This is really um, highlighted in the case example we gave with Jessica and her mom, Vicki, mm-hmm. and how the process really helped them have some clarifying of needs and where help is wanted. Um, at times, Jessica felt that Vicki took over and was helpful like too, too helpful, helpful. <laughs> um, be, but sometimes she really needed the help. Mm-hmm. But on days that she was doing well, she wanted to do it. And so she was able to voice that to Vicky, and Vicky was able to recognize when Jessica was doing well and just back off <laughs> and well, consider good. it, hey, I got a free day to myself. She doesn't mm-hmm. need me today and she could go do something else. So that was good. And that really supported independence for Jessica as well as others. There was other families where there was a similar pattern where if the parent with the disability had a lot of support from their parents, so from the grandparents, a lot of times they wanted more independence. Like they recognized they wanted the support, but they wanted more independence. Mm -hmm. And so by talking about that, the grandparents were able to back off in some situations, mm-hmm. and everybody felt good about that. Grandparents felt good about that, too. They got to be grandparents, <laughs> <laughs> again, instead, instead of, of primary, primary caregivers, caregivers, right? So that was really helpful with those boundaries. We also did have a couple of families. You know, initially, it seemed like a reduction in number of supportive relationships from people who were identified at the intake, like, here's my group of friends. And then throughout the course of the intervention, um, they reported that they were no longer friends with certain people. So while that might seem like a reduction, part of the facilitated discussion about who your support network is and how those people support you kind of brought forward that some of these relationships were not supportive or helpful. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some were unhealthy and were draining. Um, One participant realized that two of her friendships she was always giving and they were never there for her. She was taking care of their kids when they had appointments. And then through this process, she specifically had reached out to someone to arrange childcare for a significant medical appointment that she had. And then it fell through and she had to cancel the appointment last minute because the person didn't show. And so she realized that these are actually not supportive and helpful people. And it felt very freeing and helpful for her okay. to kind of eliminate those people as supports because she was giving so much including money in some cases. Mm -hmm. Some of the people it appeared almost were being taken advantage of financially. And so by cutting those people out, their situation was better. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That can be helpful. Helpful to figure out these more healthy (laughs) boundaries and determining who's who's actually supportive and who isn't. Right. So for, you know, when you were doing these, you're, you're obviously 
a really experienced social worker, you're a licensed clinical social worker, you have many years of social work practice and personal experience with disability and experience in a wide range of types of social services. Mm-hmm. So you're really the ideal person oh, <laughs> for, carry, <thank> <laughs> for carrying this out because uh-huh. you can be help, you know lots of mm-hmm. community resources, mm-hmm. but you also have clinical mm-hmm. skills yeah. like when you were talking about with Jessica. Uh-huh. So how do you, I mean, I think you were the ideal person, but <laughs> how do you think your social work experience helped you with doing this current set of planning intervention? Yeah, well, um, you know, thank you for saying that yeah. about uh, my um, skill set yeah. and my experience. At the same time, I think other social workers can do it too. Right. It's really yeah, the social work skill set. It's the social work skill set. So we're really meeting people where they are at. And I think, you know, using the story of Jessica and how, I mean, you know, I don't know if this manager of the Children's Mental Health Services was a social worker or mm-hmm. not. He, she appeared very judgmental about mm-hmm. the fact that Jessica had some challenges and that if that made her suitable to be a parent. Right. Right. And we know all parents need support to parent. (laughs) Right. Right. Disability or not, all parents need support and help. And um, that whole it takes a village Mm -hmm. (laughs) concept. And so being able to meet people where they're at and then see them in that strengths based way, recognizing the strengths that they have for parenting, the skill set that they have towards meeting their goals. This is sort of some of our um, social work 101. Like, I mean, this is how we approach working with people. And so that's a really important piece, I think, working with this population and in doing this intervention Uh specifically. Additionally, knowledge of the resource system, um, how service systems work, how to help people get connected to resources, linking people, advocating for people. Again, these are some of these core social work functions, and that was really needed in Uh many of these cases of which I explained Right. With Jessica specifically, how that came up, but that was pretty commonly the case, um, that people needed some assistance with knowing what resources were out there, how do they get connected with the resources, and then that follow-up. So so you you function both as a facilitator, because it's a general person-centered planning model, the person running the group is a facilitator. Correct. But in this version of it, you were the facilitator. You weren't doing social work assessments or making, helping them make goals or plans mm-hmm. or giving them ideas mm-hmm. for what they wanted to do. But when they came up with their ideas, right. mm-hmm. then you could help with your knowledge of the system. Right. What types of support. Right. So it was very important to make sure that the goals were directed by the family. But then if they needed assistance, breaking those down into steps or recognizing what resources might be needed to realize those goals, <laughs> then it, it did take on a little bit of a case management role. Okay. And families were aware from the start that it was time limited. Mm-hmm. Like they, they knew that it was all about going through this goal setting process and that I would help them through that process. But I'm not Long like a long term case manager. Yes. For parenting, right? Uh-huh. I mean, because that, that's not the inter- it's a short it's a short term intervention, but there was a lot of case management like tasks, yeah. referrals, um, researching resources, referrals, following up. Mm-hmm. Um, I did very little advocacy with other social service systems. I really tried to put all of those skills onto the person mm-hmm. to be or their support people to be able to do that for themselves. But I did give people a lot right. of resources <laughs> and help them break, da- break them down. And told them how to do right. it. Right, told them how to do it. And sometimes sat there while they did it. Okay. But they, I didn't do it for them. I didn't call county workers mm-hmm. for them. So do you think having a trained social worker is essential for facilitating this type of parent-centered planning intervention? Absolutely. As mentioned previously, that social worker skill set <laughs> was really important. Uh-huh. And also, as in the example of Jessica, there were times when the meetings almost turned into like a light counseling or uh-huh. like a brief counseling. So having those skills to be able to you know, facilitate healthy discussion between family members about challenges and expressing feelings and making sure multiple voices are heard, Mm -hmm. um, you know, is is very much a counseling activity, (laughs) a therapeutic activity (laughs) in a sense, right? You know, this is a short-term intervention. It's not a long-term intervention. Mm -hmm. So it's conceivable that some organizations that provide services to people with disabilities who might happen to be parents or organizations that do support parents with disabilities specifically, there aren't that many of those, Right. but that they could consider offering parent-centered planning 
for parents with disabilities. What advice would you have for an organization mm -hmm. or a social service organization that was thinking of doing this? Yeah, well, I definitely think that organizations should seriously consider you know, taking this on as a role, and it could fit within an existing staff or, uh, you know, could fit within an existing case management type role, mm -hmm. for example, or a disability services role. Mm -hmm. Because as social workers, like we're used to wearing lots of different hats right. <laughs> as we work with folks. And so it could be discussed, you know, okay, now I'm going to facilitate you know, like you said, using the facilitator role, we're going to facilitate this parent-centered planning model. Mm -hmm. And you can do that with, you know, kind of embedded within other case management services or other types of services. I think it's really important that some, uh, you know, some groups take this on because, as you mentioned, there aren't services <laughs> specifically for parents with disabilities. There's very few scattered across the country, mm -hmm. you know, and within larger metropolitan areas such as we're in, there's really nothing that's specific for that population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's definitely something that is needed. Um, Jessica's example really highlights how siloed those services are. Right. Services for disabilities and services for parents are just not interacting mm -hmm. at all and working together and not even aware what the other is doing. So I think for, you know, disability services to really take that role on to me seems like a really good fit. Sense. Recognizing the individuals with disabilities that they're working with as whole people and as members of families right. and as caregivers themselves, yes. not always as people receiving caregiving. Right. And that sometimes they're care. caregivers <laughs> themselves and that's part of who they are as a whole person and that we can support. We can support that. Well, and that, that seems like a really sort of good way to end <laughs> our discussion here. Do you have any final words? Well, I just really would like to um, put the call out to our disability service system to begin to recognize people with disabilities as parents and their mm -hmm. parenting role as part of who they are as a whole person. Mm -hmm. I think that's a growth area for disability services. I also think that services that work with families and services that are directed towards children need to have greater awareness of disability issues and recognizing the requirements to provide accommodations. Right. I mean, the Americans with Disabilities Act requires this mm -hmm. and that they need to be providing accommodations and that it's not a burden to do so. Mm -hmm. It should be done because these the are right people and these are parents and it's best for kids to be with their parents. Right. Like research has shown it's best for kids to be with their mm -hmm. parents. So we should be able to providing support to families to be able to stay together, providing support to parents to be able to be the best parents they can. And it just really seems like some of our services have a long way to go in right. learning and <laughs> understanding that. It also seems to me, you know, we're both social work professors that this is something that we might want to embed more in our social work education where yeah. we're looking at parents as whole people. Right. We're looking at parents as whole people and we're looking at people with, with disabilities, disabilities as whole parents. people. And people with disabilities as possible Right. Not parents. just as clients as that <laughs> need caregiving, right. but also yeah. people that might be in a caregiving role. Right. Definitely. Right. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming and sharing your experiences in this project. And I hope that people listening will think of ways that they might be able to incorporate parts of this model or the entire model into their service system. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Goodbye. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division. Thank you.